You guys ready? You ready? Everybody set. All right, everyone. Let's get started. Let's do it. I like that. I like the enthusiasm coming from this table. You're already my favorites. I hope you're having a great fall. So far. They're, they're more enthusiastic. You got to pep it up a little bit and, you know, make it a competition. I'll get a t-shirt cannon and I'll shoot out some shirts and stuff. We'll wait, we'll wait for that. <laughs> just a big t-shirt with my head on it. That's what you're going to get. Life size. Just boom, right there. So, <clears throat> we're going to jump into Leviticus in a second. I want to let you know the next Disciple Dojo project uh, also need your help, guys. I really need your help. This is the next DVD resource that's coming out. It's in the process right now. I just got the design, everything done, but it's called To Know and Be Known, Forming a Thoughtful Christian Sexual Ethic. It's an 11-part series. Each uh, session is between 30 and 45 minutes long. We cover everything from Genesis all the way through to Revelation of what the Bible teaches about human sexuality. We don't start with what you're not supposed to do and what you shouldn't do. and what you, We start with where Jesus started, the beginning, the basics, creation, man and woman, image of God. We spend three weeks on the Song of Solomon, unpacking the imagery and the details and what that reveals. We give a biblical theology of human sexuality in terms of how we should live within a culture where our sexual ethic is different from that of the surrounding culture and how that's always been the case for God's people. And then we end with issues that we face today in terms of gender identity and sexual ethics and LGBT interaction and ministry and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm really excited about this course. It was filmed with an actual really good camera, good audio, unlike my other stuff that's been less, is more homegrown and filmed live. This one was filmed on location when I taught it last year at Good Shepherd. But it's going to be a great DVD resource for small groups and churches. I'm doing pre-orders for it right now because that helps offset the cost of production. The course will be $50. Uh, the pre-order price is $40. So you save 20% if you pre-order. But you can order it on my website, jmsmith.org. Click on Resources. Menu drops down. DVD, Sexual Ethics. Click on there. You pre-order it with PayPal. As soon as it's out, I'll ship it right to you. So even if you don't want the course or aren't interested or whatever, let your pastors, let your small group leaders, let your church members, let people know. Because this really is a, a defining issue facing our culture. Everything from our changing culture of issues of marriage and uh, inclusion and how we deal, how we minister with people of different sexual ethics with integrity and with compassion, but also with truth and scripture. So that's the plug. This is the resource, and this, this is how I survive. If I don't sell these and my other resources, I can't do this study. I can't, this, this ministry doesn't last without Disciple Dojo resource sales. So I really, really need you guys, if you enjoyed the study and you enjoyed the teaching and you enjoy scripture, um, that's a great way to support what I do, and that will help continue to support what we do here as well. If those of you that aren't interested in the video, the entire audio of it is available on the podcast. And you can download that for free. But the video, this is a, a, a small group resource. There's, there's a, a buy that comes with a free downloadable workbook. It's a 50-page workbook that I put together that's got even more resources than we cover in the video. That's free. The, the download is a PDF. And there's even a small group leader version where if you wanted to lead your Sunday school class or your small group or your women's group or your men's group or whatever, um, that you could do it. And it's appropriate for ages probably like high school juniors and up because we get kind of explicit <laughs> when we're talking about sex it's it's definitely for adults but uh older older youth high school especially college 
um, it's a really good uh, resource for them as well. So, did, did, would you guys? Okay, yeah, yeah. Not, not probably not once you're uh, lower middle schoolers and uh, early high school, but but definitely by the time they're starting to get sexually active, which is lower and lower and lower every year, at least you need to be equipped. And, and parents you know, and grandparents you know, and friends you know. The, the, the resource is to know and be known. To know and be known. Um, you can check it out here if you want to look at it. There's a little blurb on the back. You can read kind of what it's about. But I'm going to leave it right here. And this is probably my big project for the year because I haven't done much teaching stuff this summer. Yeah, so. Yes. Yes. Yes, cash is always accepted. <laughs> cash is always accepted. Check is always accepted. I've even got the little thing in my phone where I can do a credit card. But um, <clears throat> so I, all that's good with me. I just, but let's get into Leviticus. <clears throat> Back into Leviticus, because now we're in chapter 26, and here's the thing: we are the book of Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. And the Torah is the foundation of the covenant. And another word for covenant, anybody know another word for the biblical word covenant? Anybody know the more Latinish sounding word for covenant? If you took my Bible for the rest of this course, or if you bought it and did it on your own, you could know. The word for covenant is testament. Testament just means covenant. So your Bible is divided into two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is the foundation of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And the heart of the Old Covenant, the middle of it, is Leviticus. And the middle of Leviticus is the Holiness Code. As we looked at for uh, weeks on end, back to earlier in the summer and the spring, well, now we're ending, we're nearing the end of Leviticus, we're coming to the formal conclusion of the book, and it's reiterating the covenant nature of Leviticus. See, Leviticus was not just a rule book. God didn't, when, when Israel was established and created by God, biblical Israel, uh, God didn't just say, here are the rules, now follow them. It wasn't like that. Remember, those of you that were here for Exodus, or those of you who weren't here, check the video on uh, YouTube. Exodus 20, God inaugurated a meal, a covenant meal with Israel on Mount Sinai. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the covenant, but he did it in the context of a covenant meal. That doesn't have as much significance for us today uh, because we don't have covenants. We have contracts. You sign a contract, that's it. You're held to it. The only covenant we have is one I'm about to help a couple celebrate in a couple of weeks when I do their wedding, and that's the marriage covenant. That is a public binding uh, social, but also legal, and also religious uh, celebration. And it involves a meal. Usually little hors d'oeuvres afterwards, but whatever. Eventually it used to involve a meal. Sometimes it still involves a meal. I like when they involve a meal because I get to eat. Uh, but the covenant meal, that's the thing that you would do. You'd make the agreement, there would be a ceremony, and then there would be a meal that would be shared together. And that would ratify and seal the covenant, all of it together, the whole thing. So what God's giving Israel is covenant. What all of the prophets, here's the thing, here's a short summary of all the prophetic books. So all the books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, all of those books 
almost all of them, there's one or two exceptions, almost all of those books, the theme is, hey Israel, remember the covenant we made with God? Stop breaking it. Because bad things are happening as a result of this covenant brokenness. This, this broken covenant. So turn back to God. The favorite word of the prophets is turn. Sometimes it gets translated repent, but it just means turn around. Go the other way. Come back to God, not in a ceremonial sense, in a heartfelt sense. Don't circumcise your bodies if your hearts aren't circumcised, is what the prophets will tell people. Don't celebrate your sacrifices and play your songs and have your festivals while you're still oppressing the needy, while you're still disregarding God's Sabbath laws, His rest, His, 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 His jubilee principle, all the stuff we looked at. So it's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. God has never wanted external obedience from His people. In fact, He'll say in the prophets, I detest your sacrifices. Your songs are noise to me. That's what God will say. And it's because the covenant... The heart of the covenant was a renewed and a distinct and a holy people. The sacrifices, the tabernacle, the portable Mount Sinai that we've been studying all year, that was the housing in which the, the interaction would take place between God and people. But that holiness between God and people was then to flood out from the tabernacle into the surrounding world. They would transform Israel as a society. So a non-transformed society is useless to God, no matter how meticulously they kept the tabernacle worship. So, and, and it's the same in, in today, you know, in churches. Doesn't matter how many times you go to church. The, one of the great scenes in movie history, I think, is The Godfather, one of the originals. I believe it's first Godfather. When um, at the same time that, that Corleone is at church watching, I think he's watching his baby get baptized or, or taking communion or something. There's some act that they're doing, the mobster. While that's going on, they juxtapose it with a hit being carried out that he's ordered. So it'll cut back and forth between them in church and the priest and the secretary and then somebody being killed by him. And it's, it's juxtaposing that. But that is a very real depiction of, of exactly what God hates, what he abhors. Another example of today, you know, you could be, it would, you could juxtapose somebody singing and waving their hands and clapping and getting all excited in church and then going out and hustling and dealing drugs or joining gangs or doing whatever on the, the weekdays. Or someone going to church and giving their money, writing their tithe check, and then going and flipping off the person in traffic, stiffing the waiter or waitress for their tip, and yelling at their kids that they're worthless and they're never going to amount to anything. So all of these things, it's, it's illustrations of exactly the type of faith that Leviticus is 100% opposed to. And the entire Old Testament is 100% opposed to that kind of faith. So it's an urban legend. It's a myth that in Jesus' day, all that the Old Testament was about was keeping the laws and practicing uh, external obedience. And that's what God demanded, and that's how you earned your salvation. That's not true. That's never how God intended for his people to, to, to experience his salvation. They are already out of Egypt. They are already the redeemed people of God. They're already saved. Remember, Exodus used that language specifically of God's deliverance of the Exodus, them getting saved. The Exodus in the New Testament, you know how the Exodus is described? It's described as Israel's baptism. So Israel is already, quote, saved. They've been baptized. These warnings in this chapter are given to the saved people. 
to the baptized people, to the redeemed people. All those terms, saved, baptized, redeemed, those are Old Testament terms. Those aren't New Testament terms. They first meant Israel out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea before they ever meant somebody coming to Jesus, saying a prayer at the altar and getting sprinkled or dumped. Those are later meanings, but they, those meanings piggyback on the foundational meaning of what it really meant to be saved in the Old Testament. So what God says to Israel at the end of this, at the end of Leviticus, this tail end now, he says, let me reiterate Israel in case you didn't get it. All right? He's repeating. This is kind of the summation of the book. Verse, chapter 26, verse 1. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. Do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. So the first summary is a reiteration of the first few commandments. No idolatry. No other gods. No other gods. None of those other gods brought you out of Egypt. Baal did not split the waters of the Red Sea. Asherah did not rain down hail and, and, uh, and plague and dust and all of the stuff on Egypt to free you. They did not free you. I freed you. I am Yahweh. I am your great king and I have liberated you. All ancient Near East covenants from this time period where a king would liberate someone and then they would enter into an agreement, they would begin with a historic preamble. I am the great king so-and-so who rid your land of enemies and who gave you the infrastructure and the crops and the abundance of food and all of this stuff. Therefore, because I've done this, here's what you're going to do. That's how covenants worked in the ancient Near East. And this is an example of that type of agreement. It, God's couching his relationship with Israel in terms of a great king who's done a wonderful deed for a lesser people and who now expects in return simply loyalty. That's what he expects, loyalty. So the first mark of loyalty is keep in mind who was the one who freed you, who was the one who saved you, who was the one who redeemed you. Don't worship, don't run after the other gods. And then the second one, right on the heels of that, is a summary of the other parts of uh, proper. So the first one was improper worship, and now he's going to emphasize this is proper worship. Observe my Sabbaths, have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. That's what all of Leviticus has been about. Observing the Sabbaths, and not just the Sabbath day, but the Sabbaths. Your Jubilee, the festivals that we looked at, the six festivals throughout Israel's uh, calendar year, and the weekly Sabbath. All that together, the corporate worship, and then have reverence for my sanctuary. What is the sanctuary? The tabernacle. The place where God has written this whole book to show Israel how to operate. So have reverence for that. Do, so don't do improper worship. Don't do pagan worship. Do covenant worship. Those are the two things that God has started this section off with. Then he says, here, here's the key. This is how covenants would end. In the ancient world, I make a covenant with you. We agree on something. We come to an agreement. You know, let's say that I've, I've, I've done something benevolent for someone. And I've, it's great. And they're excited. I'm excited. And we want to enter into a joined agreement of solidarity so then we'd write out what happened we'd write out this is how we came to this agreement this is what i did for them this is their thankfulness for me now here's what's going to happen we are formally going to establish this covenant and here is how i will continue to bless them so long as they remain loyal to me this is how kings would do this as long as you remain loyal to me here's how i'm going to bless you 
I'll keep your land free from enemies. I'll keep your walls up uh, maintained. I'll keep your crops irrigated. I'll keep your, your, you know, when there's famine, I'll take care of you. If there's wild animals that threaten you, I'll take care of them. If there's armies coming in, I'll take care of them. These are the things that a covenant uh, suzerain is the term for it, an ancient king protector would do for these covenant vassal or the person who's on the receiving end. So there would be that, and this is this is a documented way that these covenants worked. You can read other examples of these type of covenants in the ancient Near East literature. This is not just made up in the Bible. But after they would give these blessings, then on the flip side, and twice as long as the blessings section, there would be the curses section. If you break the covenant, this is how you will be cursed. So if you keep the covenant, here are the blessings and the benefits. If you break the covenant, here is what's going to happen. And they would be awful. They'd be like, you know, may the gods strike you down and, and destroy your land. And may they close up the sky so it doesn't rain. And may they make the ground like metal so you can't plow it. And may wild animals devour your women and children. And may you be raped. And may you eat the flesh of your offspring through famine and bubble. I mean, they were just horrendous. And they would do it in the names of all these gods. May the gods of so-and-so and the gods of so-and-so witness to this. So it was like this big binding you know, it was like, um, cross my heart, hope to die, stick me in my eye, you know, that kind of thing where if I lie, then may this happen to me. So it was like that to the billionth degree. And both parties were agreeing to it. That's the key. Both parties were agreeing to it. So it was like, these are the stipulations. Well, that's, the, that's how this chapter is set up in Leviticus. This is the ending of this book. This is the covenant, the way it's sealed. So then, here are the blessings. You expect the blessings to come if you're an ancient reader reading the covenant, and they come right in verse 3. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season. The ground will yield its crops, and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. Your threshing will continue until the grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting. And you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. So you'll be, the harvest will be so big, you'll still be gathering the wheat and threshing the wheat by the time that the grape harvest is ready, months later. And then you'll still be harvesting the grapes and making the wine by the time it's time to plant again for the next harvest. This is what the ancient Near East people <coughs> sacrificed their babies to Baal and to Moloch in order to procure. This is what they held the orgies and the high places and the pagan worship throughout the land. Every high hill they could, every place they could set up a sacred stone, they would do that to try to get the gods, Baal, Asherah, Moloch, Chemosh, any of these gods, to try to get them to provide this for their people. Rains, crops, abundance. So God's flat out telling Israel, guys, I'm the one that brings this stuff. So if you keep my decrees as a community, if you as a people live the way we have set out in this Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, it'll be reiterated in Numbers and Deuteronomy. If you live this way, I'll take care of the things that people stress about, the things that people give their most prized possessions in order to try to achieve. I will handle that. Seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. That's what Jesus is drawing on when he's preaching. He's not making stuff up out of nowhere. Calling Israel back to Torah faith. Then he goes on. I will grant peace in the land. You will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. 
You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you would chase a hundred, a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. So now he's promising the second thing, safety. You won't be attacked by wild animals. Now we in a city folk, the worst we see is maybe a deer or a dog with rabies or something. That, you know, we don't really worry about wild animals. But if you live in a wilderness region, if you, I have friends in India in the villages and up in the mountains, tigers are a threat. There are animals that still hunt and kill people. Now, they're not nearly as many with the rise of modern civilization and technology and guns and all that kind of stuff. But still, if you're walking alone in the backcountry and you hear and see a bear, you're in trouble. Well, those images were things that were concerns to Israel, especially to those who were herdsmen. Herdsmen who had the care of flocks and sheep. Nothing will attract predators more than a bunch of big sheep roaming around and eating and getting fat. That will draw out the wolves and the bears and the lions. That's what people worried about. God's saying, I'll protect you from that. And I'll protect you from the sword. I'll protect you from the big bad armies that are constantly trying to march through and take this plot of land that I've got right in the middle of this highway in the ancient world. Where you've got Egypt down here, you've got Assyria up here, you've got Babylon here, you've got the Hittites here. They're all vying for supremacy. And they'll all be marching through your land. I'll protect you. The sword will not pass through your land if you are faithful to the covenant. And then he goes on. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. And I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out to make room for the new. Verse 11 is the key. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Those of you that aren't agriculturally minded, a yoke is that big collar you put on a cow or an ox around its collar. And then you attach a bar to it, and then you attach the plow to that, and they drag it. So carrying a yoke, and they would do it with slaves as a symbolic of, of, of ownership. Put a big yoke on somebody. They kind of did it in the Middle Ages when they'd send somebody to the stocks. You know, they put their head in it, and their arms here, and they have to kind of walk in it. It's that kind of image. If you have a yoke, you are pulling someone else's burden. You are carrying the load of someone else. You're working for someone else. You're a slave. Yoke equals slavery. And God's saying, not I will, I have broken the yoke. I brought you out of Egypt. At this point in Israel's history, remember, we've been here studying this most of the year. A year is about the entire time from when Israel got to Mount Sinai until when they set out to leave Mount Sinai in numbers. So it's not like they were here for years and years and years. I mean, it's like... By the time we get through the book of Numbers, which we're going to look at start do next year, we'll have spent three times as long as Israel did at the base of Mount Sinai. So Israel, it's, it's a very formative time, and God's telling them, this is what salvation is. This is what I have saved you for. And it's very, if you notice it, it's not otherworldly. It's not, I've saved you, Israel, so that when you die, you go to heaven. That's not on their radar. At this point, their concern is how do we live, not what happens when we die. It was taken for granted when we die, we'll go to be with our people and we'll sleep in death. 
And then one day God will reverse death. Isaiah talks about this around chapter 25, I think. One day God will reverse death. He'll lift the shroud that covers all the nations, and he will raise the dead. And so God will overcome death. That's a given. But what the concern is, is what about life? What about me? What about my children? What about our family name? What are you going to do, God? How are we going to live? And God is saying here in this section, the first half of chapter 26, the first third of chapter 26, because the second one's twice as long, is all those concerns you have, all those questions you have, all the things that you didn't enjoy in Egypt, freedom, security, self-determination in terms of how you live, how you provide for your family, how you worship, all of those things, God's saying, I'll provide those because my goal in bringing you out of Egypt My goal in saving you, my goal in redeeming you, using those theological words that had actual literal meaning in in Leviticus and Exodus. My goal for this all along has been verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11 and verse 12, those are the highlight verses. Those are the circle and put an asterisk beside it because those are the heart of this section of promises. The core I will put my dwelling place among you. What does that mean? What does the word dwelling place mean? Dwelling place is tabernacle. The word tabernacle means dwelling. It's the word for tent. It's the word for where you live. And God's saying, I will set up camp among you. I will not be a God who resides on top of the mountains like the Greek gods. I'll not be a God who resides up in the heavens only and you have to grope to access him like the Canaanite gods. I'll not be a God who lives under the earth and you have to go down and you have to perform rituals in the earth to try to get the power of the underworld to come benefit you in some way like Moloch. I'm not one of those gods. I am the God who's going to dwell within you. This has that theological insight because... Old Testament, that was the promise of Israel. If God is dwelling in their midst, who can hurt him? If God's sanctuary is kept, if God is, is, if the angel of the Lord that struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, that split the waters of the Red Sea, that brought Israel out of safety from the most powerful empire in human history up until this time, if he's dwelling in their midst, if, they, he's, the, if he's their campfire, so to speak, why do they need to worry? Who do they need to be afraid of? So the promise was, for them was very practical. I will dwell, I'll put my dwelling place among you. And then the second part, I will walk among you and be your God. You will be my people. That harkens back to the Eden. That harkens back to God walking in the garden. That harkens back to a relationship that was lost through sin that Israel is the first stage in God restoring for all of humanity. So I'll dwell among you. And I'll walk among you. Those are the two terms that describe what it means to live in Hebrew. How you, how you walk, that's, a, synony- or that's a, um, a, a figure of speech for how you live. And how you, where you dwell. That's, that's how you live, how you dwell. So how you dwell, how you walk. And God's saying, I'm going to dwell and I'm going to walk in your midst. If, if you keep my commandments. If you keep this covenant. It's not taken for granted. It's not unconditional. The Abrahamic promise was unconditional that God would redeem the world through Abraham's offspring. But this stage of it, this particular stream of Abraham's offspring that God's making this covenant with, it is 100% conditional. And God is saying, if you do these things, then I will do the things that I've saved you for all along. The theological insight for New Testament readers is John's gospel. John starts his gospel by hearkening back to this. 
when he talks about in the beginning the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he goes on down and he says, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And uses this word, dwelled, dwelled, uses the Greek equivalent of it. So when Jesus entered into human history, he was doing in an entirely new way what God had promised Israel to do in the Old Testament. And the dwelling that God entered into among Israel in Jesus was Jesus' body. Jesus was the dwelling place of God. So when Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, and the text John says, they were confused because they said this temple took 40 years to build. And he says, no, no, they didn't realize he was talking about his body. And when Jesus tells, uh, I think it's Nathaniel, he says, you know, you'll see the Son of Man, you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Angels descending and ascending, that was back in Genesis, that was the dwelling place of God. That was Bethel. That's where God appeared to Jacob first. Now Jesus is saying, you're going to see it happening in me and on me. So Jesus has taken all these strands of the Old Testament, all of these different strands, and he's weaving them together into a tapestry that's him, himself. So that's how it's talked about the New Testament being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But it starts as the promise that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. So we've got through the first section. Next week we're going to look at, okay, that's the good news. But now let's look at what's actually going to happen. Because Israel's not going to keep the covenant. And things are going to get really, really bad. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, guys.